0: What does the Bible say about environmental concerns? It's the cross-culture Q&A question right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh.
1: I've said this I think a couple of weeks in a row. I'll say it again. You don't want to be here when this takes place. And I don't think you have anybody that you know that you'd want to be here either.
0: Revelation chapter 6, verse 1.
1: And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, come.
0: With these words, the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation opens, and what follows is one of the most powerful scenes in all the Bible. The Apostle John sees what has come to be known as the four writers of the apocalypse.
1: This is going to be something that is beyond anything that you and I have ever seen or like the world has never experienced before.
0: I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Just who were these riders and what do they represent? This is basically,
1: these these first four seals, this is basically man getting what man has always wanted, a world without
0: God. Today, Pastor Clay is going to introduce us to those riders and the part they play in the tribulation period. It will be a scary time with much fear and uncertainty. It will also be a time of great upheaval the likes of which the world has never seen. We're glad you've joined us for this week's Crosswalk as the Revelation series continues.
1: Holy, 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 I, want to see I have mixed emotions about the way this ends when we get over here to chapter 22. Oh, I mean... Don't get me wrong, I mean heaven is gonna be sweet and, and eternity is gonna be fantastic and, and and I'm so grateful that I'm that I'm that I'm uh, forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ and that I'm, and that I'm safe in, in Jesus. I, I, I'm so grateful for all of that. But, but I have mixed emotions because I'll tell you something. The more I study this book and the more I study about the events that God says will transpire at the end of time, the more I am gripped by the reality of what will happen to the people who are still here During that time, what will happen to those without a relationship with Jesus Christ? And I am gripped in my heart. And quite honestly, I'll tell you this, more and more, I find myself praying, God, give us a chance to touch some of their lives. God, give us the opportunity to impact more people. God, give us a chance to see more people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because God, when this thing comes down, when this all comes to an end... Whatever else happens with my life, I want to, I just want to have the opportunity to think that, I have, that I've influenced somebody for Jesus. That I've helped introduce somebody to Jesus more and more and more. Last week, uh, we introduced uh, the, the tribulation period that opens in chapter 6. This week, we're going to actually dive into the text. Last week was kind of an overview of the tribulation period in general. This week, we're going to actually dive into the text and begin to, to uh, look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, as we do so, as we begin to look at that, um, I, as I said last week, we kind of gave an introduction to the tribulation period, but but I didn't give you something that I really should have, and I wanted to give it to you this week. This is not in your outline on your, on the back of your Page, by the way, if you like to take notes, you may just want to write this uh, down. But, but I did want to give you the fact that the tribulation period, um, if my interpretation of it is correct, uh, according to Daniel chapter nine, the tribulation period is a period of time that will last seven literal years on this earth. And it's going to break down this way. Here's how you find it in. In God's Word. Chapters 6 through 9 cover the events of the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. So as we go through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, you'll be looking at what, ta- what takes place in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Chapters 10 through 14 cover the events in the middle of the tribulation period. There'll be some things happening right in there, and, and 10 through 14 brings those out. And then chapters 15 through 19 record the events of the last Three and a half years of the tribulation period. Or what is more specifically pointed, at, pointed to as the great tribulation period in chapters 15 through 19. So you, you may want to write that down or not, but I wanted to give it to you. Now, also keep this in mind as we begin to read the text in just a moment. Keep this in mind. During the tribulation period, there will be three sets of judgments that will come upon this earth. Um, during the tribulation period, I believe consecutively. And they, they are presented as seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. We'll see this as we walk all the way through chapter 6, all the way through chapter 19. We'll see those begin to unfold. But, but we'll find out that there are seven judgments, s- three sets of judgments coming that consist of seven seals, or are presented as seven seals seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Today, this morning, we look at the first four seals of the seven seals. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, we encourage you to bring one if you have one. If you don't have one, let me know and we'll get you a Bible. But, but bring your Bible with you. Uh, please feel free to. If you didn't bring it, the text is always up on the screen as well. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Everybody, you glad you're here? Yeah. Anyplace else you'd rather be? Heaven, Heaven. that's a good one. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. If you weren't here when we discussed it a few weeks ago, these seals, these seven seals in this vision that John is given... Remember, he's on the island of Patmos. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there because he's, he's, he's promoting the message of Jesus. And the Roman officials didn't like what was going on. So they sent him to this, this island where he's locked away. And they thought he wouldn't be any more trouble. And yet God brings this vision to John. He begins to write. He records the book of Revelation. And in the midst of this recording, this writing, he has this vision where he's taken to heaven. And in heaven, he sees this book. Or more properly, as I said a few weeks ago, a scroll. And it had seven seals on it. And these uh, seven seals keep the book closed. They, they were, they were waxed, with, imprinted with a stamp or a signet ring, uh, waiting for the right person with the right authority to be able to open this book. And, and as we looked at it a few weeks ago, um, this, this angel calls out, Who is worthy to open the book, to break the seals? John says there's there's no no, no response, no no, no response, nothing happens. Uh, Nobody is able, nobody steps forward. No one has the authority, no one has the credentials, Uh, no one has the right to break the seals. Until, John says, in I think chapter 5 and verse 6, John sees, he says, a lamb standing as if slain. It's, It's pretty easy to see, but the lamb represents Jesus Christ who went to the cross and conquered sin by paying Our penalty. And then conquered uh, death at the tomb by refusing to stay dead. And because of that, it's it's declared in heaven... ...behold, he is worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God the Father. God the Son takes the scroll and now he is worthy. He has the authority. He has the right to break the seals. And in Revelation chapter 6, the seals begin to be broken... And it begins to reveal all that God says will take place at the end of days. Now what's interesting is, what we discover is that not only do the seals have to be broken to let us find out what's going to happen at the end. We suddenly discover that the seals actually have a part in the end. The seals are actually part of the prophecy. And the first seal, when it is broken, the text says... That one of the four living creatures, we looked at those, talked about them in Revelation chapter 4 and who they were. But, but the first living creature cries out, with the text says, with a voice of thunder, come! In other words, what's about to happen is taking place at the authority of Jesus Christ. He has broken the seal. He is the one that's given the authority for, for these riders to come forth for this, for this picture that we're about to see. What's transpired. And the first rider comes out, and the first rider is riding on a white horse. Now, because of that, some people have mistakenly identified the rider here in Revelation chapter 6, the rider on the white horse, as Jesus Christ himself. Maybe you've been been taught that. It's not right, but maybe you've been taught that. <laughs> um, and, and the reason that, that, that some people have identified this rider as Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ does come riding forth on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19. And so people say, well, Christ is riding a white horse in Revelation 19. This must be Christ riding the white horse in, uh, in Revelation chapter 6. The problem with that is, uh, other than, the, than having the same color horse, there is no similarity between this rider and Jesus Christ. Now, for one thing... Jesus Christ is the one who just broke the seals. It'd be a little odd for him to break the seals to let himself out. That in itself would be as a little, a little strange. Second, I read about him, and we're going to look at him in a, in a minute. But quite honestly, these other guys that come right now it's not the kind of company that Jesus keeps. I mean, you just you just it just doesn't it he doesn't go with what we're about to about to read about. And third, if it is Jesus. If this, if this description, if this rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 is Jesus Christ, it would be very strange, literally, textually, it would be very strange for him to be identified as Christ at the end of the book, which he is in chapter 19, but not identified at the very beginning when he shows up here in chapter 6, if it were Christ. For those reasons, I and a lot of people believe that the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. The rider on the white horse is is the Antichrist. Now, we're going to learn and look more in depth at the Antichrist when we get to Revelation chapter 13. But I do want you to notice here this morning that the text says that the rider comes out and he has a bow, you know, a bow. But the text does not say that the bow is drawn. There's no mention of arrows. And because of that, Many biblical scholars have concluded that while he is coming out to conquer, and the text clearly says that he is given authority to conquer or to rule, while he is coming out to rule and to conquer, he will do so without force. That the bow is not drawn, that there are no arrows mentioned, and so he will come out and it will apparently be some sort of political takeover. That, that he will be uh, just so, so magnetic in his personality... So powerful as a speaker, so captivating in his, in his person, and have such a message that people will be drawn into that and most of the world will come under, under his rule. Now, if that, if that seems a little strange to you, if you say, come on, that's a little far fetched. When I mean, one guy becoming the, the ruler of, of the whole world, if that seems a little strange to you, I want you to keep in mind, if I'm right in my interpretation of, of the text, if I'm right, the rapture, or the snatching up of the church, has just taken place, just prior to what opens here in chapter six. Think about that for a moment. Millions of people—if I'm right—millions of people will suddenly disappear from the face of this earth. Men, women, children, gone in an instant. Uh, police officers and 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 people in positions of leadership and 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 military personnel and, and factory workers and farmers and, and everyday people like you and me and people in positions of, of leadership, millions of them suddenly disappearing from the face of the earth. Can you imagine the panic? Can you imagine the, the, the chaos that this world will be like in that moment? What, what in the world happened? What happened to all these people? What, what, happened, to my, what happened to my loved ones? What's going to happen to me? I think it will be absolute chaos. And I believe it will be the absolute perfect opportunity for someone to step forward with, with, the, with the right answers or the right solutions or the right explanation to step in and, and say, wait a minute, it's going to be okay. Just, I, I'm going to take control here and, and, and everything's, everything's going to be just fine. Everything's going to work out and, and it's, all, it's all going to be all right. The, the Antichrist could actually, because we don't know when the events will take place, the Antichrist could be alive even right now. Could actually be alive on this earth. Could could actually even be in some position of, of of leadership right now. Although nothing like what they will be in when 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 they come to the thing. I <laughs> I remember my uh, my wife's grandmother uh, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, she she was a diehard uh, Democrat. Uh, she used to, back in the 80s, she used to, she used to say Ronald, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because his full name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. And his name, six letters, these of his name. Six, six, six. Ronald Wilson Reagan. She says, He's the Antichrist. <laughs> now, Daniel 9 um, indicates that the Antichrist will have, has some connection to the old Roman Empire. Perhaps that means he'll be Italian. Perhaps it means that he's European. I'm not really sure exactly on that. I can't tell you on that. But this is what I can tell you. I can tell you his theme song has already been written. The Antichrist theme song has already been written. Now that's just it's not biblical, okay? That's just my summation. But 30, more than 30 years ago, John Lennon wrote a song that is probably his most famous song called Imagine that, that even, the, even people in this room that weren't even alive when it was written, most of them can probably sing it. Hugely popular worldwide. I want you to look at the lyrics to this song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will live as one. Do you do you realize? Do you understand the implications of that song? Do you understand what that song is saying? We don't need God. We don't need God. Man is the center of his universe. Man has the ability to 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 bring in this utopia that we all all want. Man has the ability to bring. Him, we can live at peace with one another. We can. We don't have to have wars or fighting or or anything else. Any of that stuff anymore. Man is the center of his existence, and that's all we need. There's no heaven. There's no hell. It's just us. I believe that that is exactly the message that the Antichrist will bring. That he will rally the people in their state of, of confusion and chaos, rally people around the idea that he can bring to this world and order a system that will bring pre- peace and unity to the world what everybody thinks they've always wanted. Now, again, if that seems a bit far-fetched to you, anybody ever heard of a little thing called the United Nations? Now, listen, I'm, not, I'm not down in the UN. I'm not saying the UN is a, is a, is a bad thing necessarily, I'm, but I'm just saying that it helps. It's setting the stage for the one who will come. It's putting in place a system that will allow for a one-world government. Anybody ever heard of something called the European Union? It's a, it's a conglomeration of, of European nations that are coming together, even have their own uh, single currency now across the European continent. Our own president this past week met with leaders from around the world who, whose countries have nuclear capabilities. They met to discuss uh, how to uh, do away with some of the nuclear weapons that, that are too readily available in the world today. Is that a bad thing? No, absolutely not. It's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that the world is being prepared for a system to be put in place that will allow for one to rise up and say, listen, I got this whole thing under control. And what it says to me when I, when I see things like that, what I've just described, when I see that, I, what it says to me is, pack your bags, it's not going to be long. Well, don't pack your bags, you're not going to need anything. <laughs> but it's not going to be long. That's what it says to me. Let me say this, given that most of the countries of the world, most of the people of the world will rally around this message and will come up under this, this, this Antichrist uh, message, it will appear, at least for a little while, that he actually does bring a sense of peace to the world. But it will be very short-lived. Because listen, listen to this, this is the truth, folks. I've lived long enough to know this. That void of the Spirit of God man will always fall back into a sinful nature. That without the Spirit of God's presence, man will always go towards a a sin nature and towards corruption. Now listen, I don't know where you stand on any of this stuff, but I don't know whether you believe in a sin nature or not. But if you don't, just just hang around with a two-year-old for a while. If you don't believe there's a sin nature, I I mentioned in my uh, pastor's perspective this week that I, I had to babysit my two grandsons one day this week. And uh, we were having a good time, man. Wyatt just swung a long time. It just put him on swing. And then we were blowing bubbles out on the back deck for the longest time. We had lunch and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they were out on the deck. And they both had their cups out there. And his little brother, Dakota, who just turned a year old, his cup was on the ground. And Wyatt likes to recycle. He's recycling everything. He, you know, he's always waiting for us to empty something so he can put it in the recycling bin. And, uh, and so he picks up Dakota's cup. And the recycling bin's out on the deck. And, he, and, he, and I said, don't you put Dakota's cup in that recycling bin. That, that's his cup. You know that's not to be recycled. That's his cup. And he, he, he looks at me, takes his arm over, boom, drops it in there. And takes off running just as soon as, you know, as soon as he does it, takes off running. He didn't have to go to disobedience school. It just came naturally to him. Nobody, it's, so... Given, left to itself, the sin nature, I'm telling you, it's going, it's going to take over. So, we come to, in. let um, me uh, go on here. Uh, so, uh, in, in verse 3 and 4, he says, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth. Uh, without really any explanation, the, the rider on the red horse uh, represents war. The rider on the red horse is war it 's pretty obvious right there in the text the peace that whatever peace the Antichrist is able to bring is very short lived and war comes forth and, and, and notice the text says that that he has given or in his hand is a great sword or a very large sword it 's imagery in there folks. The implication is that this is going to be war like the world has never experienced before that this is going to be something that is beyond anything that you and I ...have ever seen or anybody else for that matter. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the next writer comes out in verse 5. It says, "...when he, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come." And I looked, behold, a black horse. And he had sat on it had a pair of scales. Again, without much explanation needed, the writer on the black horse represents famine. Famine always accompanies war, historically wherever there's war you'll always see famine as well as you would expect men are men are holding weapons in their hand instead of farming utensils where there used to be where there used to be grains of uh, where there used to be fields of grain waving in the wind there will now be bodies scattered all over the place and famine comes. The text says that the writer has a pair of scales in his hand, implying that food will be so scarce and so valuable that it will be measured out against, against money. Now, we buy things with money now, but, but not like this text is talking about here. And there's this thing about uh, a denarius for a, a, a meal's worth of wheat or three meals of, of barley. A denarius, in that day... We, we would think of it like as a penny, but, but it's not the same equivalent. In that day, a denarius was the equivalent of, an, of one day's worth of work, one day's labor. Whatever your job is, whatever you do, if it's an average job, average labor, you'd work all day. For one day, you'd get one denarius. The text says that it will take an entire day's labor to buy one meal of bread if you, if you eat wheat, three if you eat barley. But that's just the bread, and that's just for you. What about your family? What about, the, what about meat or vegetables or, or what about your other needs? Just one meal of bread, you'll work all day for it. Famine. Uh, by the way, just real quickly, not real sure about this, but the allusion to, to not, not touching the oil and the wine. Those, oil and wine were almost always considered items that belonged to the wealthy. The wealthy had, had oil, the wealthy had, had the wine. And so there seems to be an indication that this is going to be a famine that is going to, to hit the, the vast majority of the world's population, the, the, the common people of the world. But the wealthy people may still be okay, at least for a little while. And then, and then comes the fourth seal. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name... Death. They don't even have to explain it. It's, it's right there in the text. The ashen horse, the rider of the ashen horse represents death. The very color of his horse is the color that death brings. And he didn't come to the party alone, he brought a friend. Hades or hell is with him, which reminds us that this isn't just about death. This isn't just about physical death. You know there, there are plenty of people in the world that if you just said, "Oh, well, you just you live your life and, and when it's over, it's over. You die. You go in the ground. You turn back into dust, and that's it." There's there's no there's no eternities, no consequences. There's no there's no anything. That's a pretty good sounding message to a lot of people, but but there's an eternal soul at stake here. There's an eternal soul at stake in the destiny of that soul, and hell is accompanying death. As he rides out. That latter part of verse 8. It says authority was given to them. Over a fourth of the earth. To kill. With sword and with famine and with pestilence. And by the wild beasts of the earth. The implication is that it's a culmination of all these events. Of, of war and, and famine and, and death. All of these things together. Culminating in the, in the, in the death of a quarter of the earth's population. Now, it is estimated that there are just slightly under, if, if we're talking about today's standards, there's just slightly under 7 billion people on the face of the earth today. So about 6.8 something billion, just slightly less than 7 billion people. That means if the events that are described here were to take place in our lifetime, in, in any time in the near future, that means that we're talking roughly one 1.7 billion people that will die during the first four seals of the tribulation period. Now, let's see if I can put that in some kind of perspective for you. Because I have 1.7 billion, okay. World War II was the deadliest war that this world has ever known, by far. It's estimated that somewhere between 50 and 70 million people died during World War II. Soldiers, civilians from, from, from wars, from disease, from starvation, from murder. Between 50 and 70 million people died during World War II. More than any other war. Now that means, if I did the math right, that means taking the higher estimate of 70 million that died during World War II. Taking the higher estimate of 70 million... That means that it will take somewhere between 24 and 25 World War II's to equal the number of people that will die during the first four seals. 1.7 billion people. And I want you to keep in mind, listen, this yes, this is, God's, this is part of God's judgment, yes, but this, God hasn't even poured his wrath out yet on this world, folks. This is basically, these these first four seals, this is basically man getting what man has always wanted. A world without God. And this is what they'll do with it. Void of the Spirit of God and the presence of God and the people of God. This is what they'll do with it. So the big picture biblical principle for today is this. Can I have the BP squared? Thank you. When the first four seals are broken, the hope of the world will turn into a world without hope. As the Antichrist comes on the scene, he will be applauded, he will be cheered, he will be acknowledged as their, as their Savior, as the one that's going to, going to finally bring peace to this world. Listen to me, governments and, and politicians can promise peace and the Antichrist can try and set up some type of illusion of peace, but only the true Prince of Peace can bring it. And while they're cheering and applauding, and, and idolizing, and following this, this one who has risen to, to prominence, it will be very short-lived. And the one who brings the hope of the world, I find that it soon turns into a world without hope. Because God's judgment has begun to move upon, the, upon a world system that has rejected him, and has chased after the Antichrist instead of followed the one true Christ. And they will, as as Paul says, even in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without, what? Excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. It turns out in the end, when we get to the end, it, 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 it turns out good for the followers of Jesus. But we're the only ones that it turns out good for. And we're going to see Glorious, wonderful things as we come towards the, the end of this book. But, but before then, we're, we're, we're walking in this book. We're walking through, quite literally, hell on earth for seven years. 1.7 billion people. And it, it, it makes me say, God, give me eyes to see them the way you see them. Give me ears to hear them the way you hear them. Give me a heart to care about them the way you care about them. I, I've said this. I think a couple of weeks in a row I'll say it again you don't want to be here when this takes place and I don't think you have anybody that you know that you'd want to be here either
0: well as Pastor Clay put it today in the tribulation period as the Antichrist comes to power the hope of the world will turn into a world without hope war, destruction, disease, famine and death will come upon the earth like nothing there's ever been seen before Mankind, in an attempt to control his own destiny, will only bring chaos and calamity to the world. But as we'll see in the weeks ahead, even in the midst of all that will be going on, God is going to be accomplishing His purposes of drawing this world to a close to make room for a new heaven and new earth and His reign on the earth. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Now this week's cross-culture Q&A.
1: Each week we take one question that someone has turned in, that's filled out on a card, and this one, I've had this one for for quite a while, uh, but I thought it'd be very appropriate this week because this week, uh, coming up this week, is Earth Day. Uh, I've I've seen that on the news a couple times, seen different things celebrated, and it's Earth Day. So the Q&A question for today is this. What does the Bible say about environmental concerns? Somebody... uh, like I said, turned this one in a good time ago. And I just thought, well, this might be appropriate for this week since Earth Day's coming up. And, and I saw in the news this morning where lots of people were out picking up trash and, and things like that. But what does the Bible say about environmental concerns? Christians, I think, have gotten a bad rap at times uh, that somehow there's this idea that Christians uh, don't care about the environment. And Christians aren't, you know, environmentalists and, and all that kind of stuff. First off, let me say that, that I, I really believe that Christians, that followers of Jesus, ought to be the best environmentalists. I think we ought to be the uh, the, the ones that are most concerned about, uh, about the world in which we live. And I want to give you uh, about three reasons why I think that it's important. Uh, the first reason I think that we ought to be concerned about the environment is because, number one, it doesn't, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. I mean, it's His... Uh, creation. Psalm uh, 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And then Paul uh, quotes the first part of that verse again in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, when he says, the earth is the Lord Lord's and all it contains. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Him. And, and, and I'll tell you something. I, I, know, I know Cindy and I have always been this way. If there was ever a time in our lives that we borrowed something from somebody, you know, maybe a, a, a hedge clippers or a dish or something like that. I don't know about you, but, but we always, well, we took extra special care of that item, whatever it was, to make sure that we didn't scratch it or break it or, you know, let the kids hold it or anything else like that because it didn't belong to us and we knew it didn't belong to us and so we took extra special care of that. This planet is not ours. It belongs to God. Second reason that I think we should be concerned about the environment is this. We've been made caretakers of it. That's part of our responsibility. Genesis chapter 1. You've probably read these verses before, perhaps. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and... "...and subdue it or, or, or rule over it, take care of it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth." You and I have been made caretakers. Stewards would be the old, old-fashioned term. But we have been given the responsibility of overseeing and taking care of this creation. Let me, let me remind you this, that, that, means, that, that doesn't mean to exploit it, but it means to protect it. It means to recognize the responsibilities that we have been given with this environment. And the third reason uh, I would say that we need to be concerned about our planet, about, about our environment, it's the only one we've got. It's, it, this is it. I mean, I know we're gonna get a, get a new one in eternity, and we're working on that in the Book of Revelation. We go get there, but but this is it. You know, th- this is this is the one that we've got, and we need to uh, make sure that we take care of it and do the best job uh, and pass it on to our children, depending on how long before Jesus comes back. Uh, pass it on to our children. In, uh, in better condition than, uh, than when it was given to us. You know, that's, that's what we try to do here at the high school. This doesn't belong to us. Uh, we're using this space, but, we, but our, our, one of our ideas is we want to leave it in better shape when we walk out of here on Sunday morning than, it, than even that it was in when we came in. So uh, that's something you and I do. But keep this last thought in mind. This is important, I think, that you make sure you keep this in mind. We worship the Creator, not the creation. Okay? Always keep that in mind. Because I will say this. There are some environmental groups that, uh, I mean, and I'm, I, I confess, I make fun of them. Sometimes I talk about the tree huggers and all that kind of stuff. And, I, and I'm not anti. I love trees. But yeah, I, I, I know that, that's, that there's perspective that gets lost in this somewhere. And you and I need to remember that we worship and serve the Creator, not the creation itself. We've been given custody of it, entrusted with it, take care of it, to use it for the good of mankind That's Q&A for today.